You know that sinking feeling in your stomach when you are watching an event unfold so momentous that you are sure the world had fundamentally changed from before the event to after it? I felt this way, for example, on September 11th, 2001. It's very likely that Germans had this feeling on the night of February 10th, 1933, when Adolf Hitler addressed Berlin Sportpolist before an ecstatic crowd of 12,000. After almost 15 years of trying, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or Nazis for short, had taken power. The Third Reich had begun. Reich meant realm, or empire. It was the third after the First Reich of the Holy Roman Empire, and the second being the German Empire put together by Otto von Bismarck in the 19th century. The early 1930s were a time of great turmoil for Germany. There was economic hardship. There was violence and death in the streets as paramilitary groups fought one another. The government offered no hope of solutions, just a parliament that refused to even draft laws and govern. For some Germans, there was hope now that Hitler was in power. He promised order. He promised prosperity and he promised renewed respect for a nation many other countries blamed for the debacle of the First World War. For other Germans, however, Hitler's rise to power brought fear. He was a demagogue, a tyrant. He didn't work well with others. He threatened democracy and civil liberties. At the sport palace, in his almost knee-high boots, loose-fitting pants, swastika on his left arm and greased hair right to left, Hitler stood before his audience. The anticipation in the auditorium built as he made the crowd wait to hear his voice. He started slowly. Soon, however, his voice had more energy. This was his first public speech after President Hindenburg appointed him Chancellor on January 30, 1933. In the speech, he recalled the history of the National Socialist Movement and his commitment to German nationalism. He denounced Marxism and what he and many others referred to as the, quote, men of November 1918, a reference to those responsible for agreeing to armistice at the conclusion of World War I. Hitler spoke so ferociously that his voice started to crack under great strain. His nonverbal communication was just as energetic as he spoke, he waved his hands in the air, he pointed, he adjusted his belt and crossed his arms. Meanwhile, the audience soaked in Hitler's words. They greeted him with the traditional Nazi salute, the Sig Hail. They responded to his screams with thundering cheers and applause. This was the voice that captivated so many Germans. It was not Hitler's connections, nor his acumen, nor wealth that vaulted him to political superstardom. It was primarily his ability to hold a crowd. The Nazi party itself had grown radically since its founding in 1920. Millions voted for a national socialist in the many German elections of the early 1930s. These party members and supporters were attracted to the solutions the Nazis offered for the many problems facing the country. Unemployment, inflation, a wounded German pride. Even more so, these supporters were drawn in by the vigor and pride the Nazis promised to a people that were humiliated after World War I. At the conclusion of Hitler's speech, Nazi propaganda head Josef Goebbels led the crowd to Sig Heil. They stretched their arms forward while hailing in response, 
Then, as Nazi officials departed down the aisle, everyone sang the Hearst Vessel lead. This was the primary Nazi propaganda song. The band blasted the notes that sounded a bit like the hymn, How Great Thou Art. The lyrics, however, were far different from the Christian song. The Nazis sang about fights with communists and swastika flags lining German streets. Hitler and the National Socialists had achieved power, something they had long strived for. How did they get there? How did Hitler, at one time in his life a homeless artist in Vienna, become chancellor of one of the world's great powers? There is much to say about Hitler's rise in politics and the party struggles in the 1920s, but it was a different moment that was the critical juncture. This moment happened in January of 1933. It was a time at which Hitler could have receded into history as a popular yet inconsequential firebrand. While the National Socialists for a number of months had held the majority of seats in Germany's parliament, also known as the Reichstag, President Paul von Hindenburg had been hesitant to appoint Hitler as chancellor. Hitler refused other positions that were offered to him, and by January, the opportunity for a place in the German government seemed to have passed him by. However, a backdoor meeting gave Hitler and the Nazi movement new life. In this series, called Hitler Becomes Chancellor and How It Almost Didn't Happen, we will explore this crossroads moment in four narrative episodes. We will look at how Hitler put himself in a position to take power, how the Weimar Republic fell apart amidst political polarization and the inability of President Hindenburg to put together a functioning government, and how Nazi success between 1930 and 1932 pressured Hindenburg to seriously consider Hitler for chancellor. Finally, and most importantly, we will explore how Hitler actually gained power. The stakes were high for Hitler becoming chancellor. Once he gained this position of power, Germany would begin an unalterable transformation from a democracy into a Nazi state. Had the Nazis been left out of power, perhaps Germany would have avoided a fascist government. Maybe the world would have been spared the Second Great War. I mean, this is one of the reasons Hitler continues to drive so much fascination today. His decisions fundamentally shaped the century. He starts World War II, which leads to a decimated Europe, which leads to the Cold War, and, well, you get the point. The build-up to this do-or-die month for Hitler is a drama all its own. It's full of backroom meetings, rivalries, and bad blood. It's full of spectacle, including violence on the streets and massive public speeches. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll. In this episode, the first of the series, we will explain how Hitler and the Nazis created their chance to take power. In the 1920s, they were a fringe political group. By the end of 1930, however, they forced people to take them seriously when, in a pivotal Reichstag election, they took the second most seats. In 1924, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, in English, My Struggle. It was originally titled, Four and a Half Years of Struggle Against Lies, Corruption, and Cowardice. However, Hitler's publisher convinced him to change the title to what we know today. He wrote while in Landsberg Prison, sentenced there for leading an unsuccessful coup attempt on the German government. This putsch attempt happened in November of 1923, starting in a Munich beer hall 
and ending with police firing at the uprising and suppressing it. Wearing lederhosen and a Tyrolean jacket, Hitler sat at his typewriter, pecking for letters with single fingers. Fellow Nazi Rudolf Hess was also at Landsberg Prison. He adored Hitler and helped him with his book, typing for him as he called out his words. Surrounding Hitler were many gifts admirers had sent, including flowers and treats. Hitler dictated to Hess his hatred of, quote, international Marxism and, quote, international Jewry. He believed these things to be responsible for Germany's woes. He also expressed his loathing of the Versailles Treaty and the burdens it placed on the country, including its restrictions on armament. This agreement that officially closed the First World War would come to haunt Germany. In fact, the post-World War I world was the incubator for German extremism. The country had formed an unstable government, the Weimar Republic. As Germans decided if they even wanted democracy, the country faced even greater challenges, inflation, unemployment, and World War I reparations. Germany's place in the geopolitical structure was also uncertain. The country hated the Versailles Treaty and its conditions to keep Germany in check and to hold it accountable for the significant costs of the war. The National Socialists were formed in these post-World War I conditions. In the 1920s, they were a fringe political party. They had moments of flash, for example, there was the failed putsch attempt of 1923. Also, there were chanting, marching stormtroopers in German cities throughout the decade. However, the Nazis did not make much political ground in the 20s. In September of 1930, however, the Nazis earned 107 Reichstag seats and they first gained respectability as a legitimate movement. While this was not a majority of Reichstag seats, they could no longer be dismissed as a splinter movement. This success created their chance to maneuver into power. A number of events set up the success of this election. Now this timeline can be confusing, so please be patient with me as I try to explain it. Many of the events leading up to this election were related to German economic struggles. Not only was the economy puttering, but the country owed a massive amount in World War I reparations. In 1929, American businessman Owen Young led a group that put together a reparations plan for Germany to pay for the cost of the war. The plan angered many Germans, and National Socialists took advantage of the opportunity to gain supporters. Then, of course, there was the Great Depression. This was another opportunity for the National Socialists to gain supporters. As Americans were struggling with the Depression, they recalled German debt, much of it incurred to pay for World War I reparations. This caused the German economy to tank. Businesses went under, and unemployment spiked. As more and more people lost money, and therefore were limited in how much food they could buy, the German agricultural industry felt the pressure of this decreased demand. In a few years' time, about a third of German workers were out of a job. As the Weimar government struggled to deal with the Depression, the Nazis said they would offer a different solution than the current system. This became an even more powerful talking point when the government descended into full incompetency. This happened to the Reichstag in the year 1930. The Reichstag when it had formed a majority coalition of different parties, would write and pass laws. In early 1930, a coalition had been formed. However, 
it fell apart in March. This left Chancellor Heinrich Brüning to try to govern without a coalition. However, this proved difficult. In July, in an attempt to solve the German fiscal crisis, Brüning proposed an emergency decree. However, the Reichstag opposed it, and the Chancellor and Hindenburg decided to break up the German parliament. This action triggered new elections, and in September, the country would vote for new Reichstag members. With the election in place, the Nazis had another chance to show the legitimacy of their movement. They would take full advantage of the opportunity. This was the election of September of 1930 that changed the fortunes of the Nazis. Before we get to the results of the election, it's important to explain and illustrate the Nazi campaign. It was a nasty, violent one. Think about a Twitter fight, but only on the streets and with physical violence involved. One of the most famous cases of violence was the death of Nazi leader Hearst Wessel. On January 14, 1930, Wessel was sitting in his apartment in Berlin when he heard someone outside. Upon opening his door, Wessel was met with bullets. German communist Ali Holler was the one who had shot Wessel. Holler had been put up to the shooting by Wessel's landlord, a communist widow. Wessel's girlfriend, who had been a prostitute, possibly still working at the time, was living with him, but he would not pay for her rent. At least this was according to the landlady. Also according to the landlady, Wessel had threatened her when she asked him to pay. Wessel died a month later in the hospital. The killing would be a rallying point for the Nazis. Wessel's death became propaganda in their fight with the communists and in their pursuit of political power. It was typical of the bloodshed of the time, a type of political violence that is hard for us to understand today. This was mostly between the Nazis and communists, and much of it took place on German streets. As the Nazis marched the streets, often looking for a fight, a song put together by Hearst Wessel called Raise the Flag was a common accompaniment to their marching. Propaganda leader Josef Goebbels made sure this was true about finding out about the shooting of Wessel. Soon, Nazi newspapers called him a martyr. Goebbels himself acted as if he were devastated by the incident. He might indeed have been distraught, but more likely he was behaving this way to use the shooting as a propaganda opportunity. Goebbels intended Bessel's song, Raise the Flag, also known as the Hearst Vessel Song, to be a staple of the Third Reich. Around 30,000 people were at Bessel's funeral in Berlin. The procession to the graveyard was greeted by a communist message written on the walls, quote, a final hail Hitler to the pimp Hearst Vessel, end quote. Of course, this was a reference to Vessel's prostitute girlfriend. Hearst Vessel and his song became sacred to the Nazis. However, for the Third Reich's enemies, the song was verboten. The American federal government, for example, censored it from radio stations. In the late summer of 1930, the Hearst Vessel song had a direct purpose for the Nazis, to energize marchers as they campaigned for Reichstag elections to take place that September. Try to imagine a campaign season where soldiers marched the streets to battle songs, where violent and racial epithets were thrown around. There were huge rallies with big flags and boots stepping in unison. The Nazis' primary strategy for the elections was to highlight the ills of the current Weimar system through aggressive campaigning methods. This, coupled with street violence, led to a turbulent election season. 
During the campaign, the Nazis pounded away at the Weimar government, blaming it for political dysfunction and German shame, among other things. Hitler shouted these accusations before crowds as big as 20,000 people. And they took on the Young Plan and other things that lingered as an effect of the First World War, including the, quote, war guilt lie. A Nazi poster from these elections sums up the major themes of the party's election campaign. On it, a snake lies dead, stabbed in its head by a dagger. A Star of David set on the snake's forehead, right where the blade punctured its victim. Listed along the body of the dead snake were the many things the Nazis campaigned against. These included Marxism, Bolshevism, unemployment, Versailles, and the Young Plan. Most significantly, the Nazis stood opposed to things. However, they also propagated their positive vision for the nation. They wanted a united German nation bound together by race, culture, and service for country. The Nazis were vigorous in their campaign methods. They held rallies, marches, and speeches. They also passed out pamphlets and put up posters. They also instituted novel research methods. For example, they interviewed German citizens and analyzed what would be the most effective way to reach them. They had local leaders write up the findings. One day before the elections, just as there was throughout the campaign, violence was on the streets. A communist was killed, policemen were hurt, and the left and the right fought with one another. Still, the vote went on. The results were surprising, even shocking. The National Socialists received almost 6.5 million votes, up from 800,000 two years prior, and they had 107 seats in the Reichstag. Now, the Social Democrats were the only bigger German political party. Goebbels felt the country was finally coming to its senses about the Weimar Republic. He also believed the Nazis' hard work with propaganda was paying off. The task that lay before them was to revolutionize Germany. They would certainly have a chance to do this. Moving forward, these election results meant that Hitler and the Nazis were in an excellent position. They had the second most seats in the Reichstag and were on their way toward the capture of control of the German nation. The election results would also contribute to a floundering Reichstag. Political polarization led to more fighting than lawmaking. Just as the far-right Nazis made gains, the far-left communists also had a strong showing. With 76 seats, they were the third largest political party. 1931 would be a year of opportunity for the Nazis, especially as the Weimar government continued to fall apart. They would be there to make the most of it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Lincoln. In it, they recreate the American Congress in the 19th century. They portray the yelling, name-calling, and raucous behavior of the congressmen as they debated slavery. This was the Reichstag in the early 1930s. At one session in 1931, communists sang the Internationale and yelled invectives at their Nazi counterparts. They sang, Wake up, wretched of this earth, who are constantly forced to hunger. Clear out the oppressors, army of slaves awaken. The Nazis also had their fair share of verbal abuse for the communists. Meanwhile, as the two sides assailed one another, no work was done. Parliament was not governing Germany. The failure of the German government was evident in 1931, particularly following the elections of September 1930. For example, on February 10th, the Nazis upended a Reichstag session when their representatives formed a protest. The 107 Nazi Reichstag members sig hailed three times in unison, 
their arms lifted in the National Socialist salute. Then they left. The Nazis did not want to govern. They wanted to disrupt. With actions like these, the Weimar government continued its dysfunction in 1931. Bruni continued to govern through emergency decree as the Reichstag, incapacitated by polarization, got nothing done. And the economy continued to falter. Soon, six million Germans would be looking for jobs. This was more fodder for the Nazis as they picked up even more momentum with regional elections. When 1931 became 1932, another opportunity presented itself for them to gain even more power, the presidency. Elections loomed in March. It was a chance for Hitler to replace Hindenburg at a primary seat of power in Germany. However, the decision to run was not as clear-cut as it might seem. It would not be easy to beat the very popular Hindenburg. The field marshal was a war hero and a sort of living legend among Germans. And losing would risk putting a dent in Nazi political momentum that had been building so rapidly. Hitler, however, decided to run, which Goebbels revealed before a crowd of Nazi officials at Berlin's Sportpolist. Those listening burst into a long ovation, which some say continued for as long as 20 minutes. Would he be able to take down Hindenburg, or would the Nazi movement stall? Next week, we will explore the election battle between Hitler and the field marshal. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Crossroads of History. Next week, we will continue our series. I am grateful for the work of three historians whose works I have consulted for this series. This includes The Third Reich, A History of Nazi Germany by Thomas Childers, Hitler, 1889 to 1936 by Ian Kershaw, and The Coming of the Third Reich by Richard J. Evans. Be on the lookout for the release of next week's episode on Wednesday, October 14th. Have a great week, everyone.